All right, tonight as we look and consider Good Friday, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 and 34. Let's read that and then we will pray. Mark 15, 33. These are the words of God. And when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. We have gathered here this evening to reflect upon the death of your son, that awful moment of agony and torment as sinners mocked, spat upon, and ridiculed your beloved one. We know the victory that came as a result, but help us to be tempered in our reflection, composed in our assessment, and somber in our souls. I ask and pray that your spirit would provoke us for the sake of your glory. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Well, today is Good Friday. We commemorate this particular day, brazenly calling it good, because it was on this day that Jesus was crucified. In a sense, one cannot appreciate the goodness of what this Friday represents without first appreciating the abject horror of what this Friday represents. Commemorating the day when our Savior was betrayed, beaten, mocked, and nailed to the cross only makes sense when understood in light of Resurrection Sunday. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of people were crucified under the tyranny of Rome. But this event was, of course, different. It was different because of who it was that hung there. The death of Jesus Christ was the infinite glory and wisdom of God. And that's what makes it good. It seemed good to the triune Godhead to give us this particular Friday. The cross of Christ itself is a centerpiece of Christian theology. We preach Christ crucified, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23. That's not to say that the resurrection isn't a centerpiece either, and nor is it to say that we don't preach the resurrection, but... The cross takes priority in that it was the very place where sin was judicially dealt with, where Satan was judged and cast out, and where death folded in on itself and found itself extinguished. Good Friday means that death death had finally met its match. We magnify the cross first, for in the death of Christ we find ourselves guilty and yet absolved. Ashamed and yet justified. At the cross, we find ourselves utterly inadequate, yet that is entirely the point. The New Testament has much to say about the crucifixion. Specifically, the Gospels themselves highlight the events surrounding the cross in remarkable detail. Each of the writers come at it from a different angle, underscoring the various theological perspectives of this substitutionary occasion. When we read them together, all of these Gospels together, we get a fuller picture of its glories. And tonight we're going to look briefly at one aspect of the cross, and this is from Mark's perspective. There are seven sayings of Jesus on the cross, a total of seven sayings, 
seven being a, the perfect number, certainly God's number. And there were seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. Uh, Luke covers three of them. And Emily read those. Uh, Father, forgive them, for they know not, they do not know what they are doing. Uh, the second one is, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. And the third saying of Jesus that Luke highlights is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, those are only in Luke's gospel. John's gospel, remember we have four gospels, John's gospel covers three more. Uh, one of the sayings is, woman, behold your son. And then to the disciple he said, behold your mother. And then the third, or excuse me, the second saying is when Jesus said, I am thirsty. You remember that one. And the third one in John's gospel, again, these, are, these three only appear in John. The third one is uh, one word in Greek, to telestai, it is finished. Matthew and Mark together, they only cover one saying and they cover the exact same saying. And that's what we're going to look at tonight. So let's look at those verses again. Mark 15, 33 and 34. And when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Three hours of darkness. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, the sixth hour, some of you may be wondering, especially you kiddos, what is the sixth hour? The sixth hour was 12 p.m. noon. Uh, you started at sunrise at 6 a.m. The sixth hour was 12 p.m. noon. The ninth hour was 3 p.m. in the afternoon. After the kangaroo court all-nighter and several appearances before Pilate and then to Herod and then back to Pilate, Jesus was that morning beaten and bloodied. He was forced to walk what is known as the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrow. He was unable to carry the cross outside the city to the place of the skull, known as Golgotha. Recall that Simon of Cyrene, he was actually commissioned to carry the cross on his behalf. So at some point mid-morning, Mark says it was actually the third hour, which would have been 9 a.m., that is when he was crucified. That's when all of this began. We don't know exactly what time he got to the place of the skull. Presumably, it, it was uh, the beatings took place some, sometime in the morning. Uh, the, the charade of going back and forth to Pilate, Pilate washing his hands, all of those things happened at some point in the morning. But Mark says in the third hour, 9 a.m., is when they crucified him. So presumably, he got there, and uh, after walking, they started to crucify him. You can see that in Mark 15, 25. Jesus was strapped to a cross and seven to ten inch nails were driven into his wrists and his feet. After the laudable nails, we praise those nails, do we not? The laudable nails were put in place, itself an excruciating pain. The cross would have been hoisted up and put into a prefabricated and outfitted hole so as to keep it in place. Now, contrary to many cartoons and even movies, Jesus would have been low enough to the ground that dogs could encircle the area and nip at his feet, should they be permitted to do so. Usually they portray Jesus being hoisted up really high, but in actuality, historical record tells us that that's not really the case. He would have been fairly low to the ground. Certainly he could reach out and, and touch, touch him. 
Now, the crucified person had two options. First, he or she could leverage their feet that were nailed into the wood. They could hold themselves up long enough to take a breath while sitting on this small seat-like piece of wood, which is behind their lower back. If you could just muster up the strength to lean up, then you could rest perhaps your um, lower back, uh, your bottom, you could put it on the edge there. But of course, getting a breath and that sort of thing was difficult to do and it wouldn't last long because then second, the other option was to slouch down further, unable to hold their weight and thus you would have difficulty breathing under that sort of stress. This is somewhat graphic tonight, but it should be. Now, the long nails would have been probably, we're pretty sure, driven through the wrist so as to sever the median nerve itself in unbelievably excruciating pain, actually paralyzing the victim's hands. Um, the two bones would have been met there too so as to keep the person on the cross, probably even using rope to make sure that his hands stayed in place. The knees were bent at about a 45 degree angle and they the feet were nailed to the wood rendering the victim almost completely unable to hold themselves up now some died within just a few minutes after the trauma and blood loss others lasted a few hours suffocation which deprives the body of oxygen puts a tremendous stress on the lungs and the chest cavity as fluid build up around the heart would in fact be the natural outcome of such a thing. Capillaries bursting, your lungs filling up with water. Remember that Jesus' legs were not broken because the soldier looked upon him and realized he was already dead. And you may recall that John tells us that one of the soldiers had a spear and he pierced the side of Jesus. And John says that blood and water came out, having punctured the sack around his heart. Now, there's theological significance to the blood and the water. Uh, forgiveness of sins, baptism, there's, I think John is telling us something there, but we're getting ahead of ourselves. The goal of Rome was public shaming. So the crucifixions took place along major roadways, so those passing by would learn to fear road, uh, fear Rome. Think, think uh, you know, I-66 or something, perhaps even 28. They were undoubtedly political statements. The Persians, way back before Rome, they were the ones who invented crucifixion. Sometimes just on one stake, they would have had their hands above their head and been crucified that way. But the Romans, they came along and they actually perfected the art of torture. Now, torture was their leverage. But regarding the shame, Jesus' death was no different. They wanted him humiliated. They wanted the, the person exploited, punished, and condemned. He would have been crucified naked as everyone else was, so as to add to the shame. Now, before we dig into this particular statement of Jesus, we need to remember why Jesus was put to death. Not just theologically why, for our sins, we know that. But why was Jesus put to death? What was the specific charge? Now, as is often the case when men suffer injustice at the hands of wicked tyrants, prosecutors, today we call them prosecutor prosecuting attorneys, they will, in an attempt to build their case, try to make anything stick. Anything. Was Jesus a blasphemer? Did he try and make himself as God? Did he threaten to destroy the temple? 
There was questions about that with the religious leaders. The religious leaders were often trying to entrap Jesus, but Jesus was always smarter than them. And as it turns out, the charge of Jesus, what did they level against him that got him through Pilate and just sort of ran roughshod through the court system there? What got him, what was the charge? Well, the charge was inscribed in three different languages on a placard and it was placed over his head. And what did it say? Do kids remember what was said on the top of the cross? It was on, it's actually on the front of your bulletin because I like to leave little Easter eggs. No pun intended. Uh, what was the inscription? What does it say, Maya? This is the King of the Jews. That was Jesus' crime. In other words, treason. Treason was the crime. Caesar is King of the Jews, not Jesus. And therefore, in a corrupt display of the religious leaders' own betrayal of the very God they say they worshipped, they, if you remember, granted Caesar's lordship. We have no other lord but Caesar. They granted Caesar's lordship in order to put Jesus to death, even though they didn't like the signage per se. They wanted it to say, well, this man said he's king of the Jews. Pilate says, well, I've written what I've written. I'm not changing it now. Truer words were never said. He was and is, in fact, the king of the Jews. Mark's gospel is full of irony, and this is the great irony of it. The statement is true. He is the king of the Jews. He's the king of the world. Now back to the text. It says, the Bible says that darkness covered the land for three hours. Darkness is a sign of judgment in the Old Testament. You may recall that darkness lasted three days in Egypt before God took the lives of the firstborns. In Amos chapter 8, God promised to, quote, make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. A prophecy in Amos. Here at the most significant time in history, inexplicable darkness covered the land for three hours. You may be reminded of John 3, 16 through 21. Listen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Unbelief is your judgment. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been done by God. If you're faithful, you're not scared of the light. The 3 p.m. time is significant. This timing of Jesus' death at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. It was significant because this was the time of the daily bringing in of the lamb into the temple. Probably the exact same time Jesus said, it is finished, and he committed his spirit to his father, and he died. The religious leaders were bringing the lamb into the temple. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the irony in Mark's gospel, and John's for that matter. Now, most people hanging on a cross with nails in your wrists and feet, 
having been beaten and flogged, most people would cry out in pain, screaming and raging and ultimately despairing of life itself. Jesus, however, has not lost sight of what this means. Rather than scream, what does Jesus do? He prays. What Jesus says is so significant that Mark tells us the exact Aramaic words that Jesus would have said and did say, and he translates it for us. We've always wondered, you know, the dialect. What did, how did Jesus talk? Did he have a deeper voice? We don't, we don't know, but we know that he would have spoken Aramaic and Greek. But here, Aramaic tends to be, according to Mark, that, that may have been Jesus' primary choice of communication. And he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, what you need to know is that that is a prayer, and it's a direct quotation from Psalm 22, verse 1. Jesus is quoting Scripture. He's quoting Scripture. Certainly, this was a cry of agony, but it was based on the fact that in that moment, the man, Jesus Christ, was bereft of the Father's presence. At least, that is how he felt. Now, Psalm 22 was written by David, and in it, the righteous sufferer, he laments his plight. He's crying out to God as a suffering person. He's expressing this profound sense of abandonment by God. And note that it wasn't a statement, but a question. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A question. Now, Jesus was fully God and fully man, but don't lose sight of the fact that he was really fully man. He had a nervous system that was under duress on the cross. His capillaries were stressed to the max. He really did lose a lot of blood. The inflammation and trauma from the beating alone had his real physical body under prodigious strain. So emotionally, mentally, Jesus suffered all of it. He had a relationship with the Father talked often about doing his father's will. That somehow, though, in his humanity, he felt like that relationship with his father was being torn asunder. The father made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, 2 Corinthians 5.22, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus, like David, was suffering both physically and psychologically, emotionally, mentally, The sense of abandonment, Jesus exclaims, was real, and it was happening right now in that moment. Psalm 22 was unequivocally the most fitting text that Jesus could have referenced, hands down. It's a profound paradox, but it is scripturally accurate. Jesus suffered the weight of sin on our behalf, and part of that suffering under the weight of sin was a momentary feeling of having the father, his father, look away. He was deserted by his disciples, deserted, rejected by his own people, and now he was hanging, cursed on a tree, feeling the weight of the world coming, crashing down on him. This was an immense amount of stress, an immense amount of pain and agony and suffering. He was alone. He was cursed. And this sense of abandonment that David felt and that Jesus quotes here on the cross is precisely what sin does. What does sin do? Ultimately, it leaves you on your own. It leaves you on your own. That is what Jesus experienced. Utter cursedness, utter forsakenness, total abandonment. 
The sun gave way to darkness, and the Son of God gave way to sin and judgment. He was forsaken by everyone. What is curious is that toward the end of Psalm 22, David celebrates God's vindication. And that's in verses 22 through 24. I'm going to read verse 24. It says, For he has not despised, and he has not abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. No doubt Jesus knew this psalm well, which is why he references it. It is accurate to suggest that the Father hid his face in that moment. You've heard, uh, we've sang the song, How Deep the Father's Love, and the lyric about the Father turning his face away. That's a real accurate thing to suggest. But we also know from Resurrection Sunday that the Father has not despised Jesus and has not hidden his face from him. It was only temporary abandonment. It is as if God, Jesus, crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? He dies, and God's, no, I didn't, the Father said, I, I didn't forsake you. I will vindicate you. I, will, I do not abhor your affliction. I do not reject you and cast you out. You are a righteous sufferer, and I will vindicate you. And for Jesus to cry out, my God, my God, he must have experienced desperation. An innocent man taking on the sins of the world. Jesus didn't feel the Father's presence, but he cries out to his Father and his God. Jesus experiences what it's like to be severed from God, and yet he is invoking him as well. This cry of dereliction, as one author put it, looked like despair. It looked like a loss of faith and trust, and it looked like a severed relationship with God. He was suffering, and where was God in that moment? They even mocked him. Save yourself. And in some sense, that's what the cross was. It was a cursed man hanging on the tree. However, Jesus illustrates for us what faith looks like. Believing on God, crying out to God when you're suffering, even when we don't feel like he is near. We cry out to him and we plead with him. That's not an act of unbelief. That's an act of faith. It is God who vindicates the righteous. Now, a few points of application are in order. Jesus' words, while hanging on the tree as a forsaken man, it actually teaches us the heart of the gospel. Jesus took on our abandonment. He took on everything. Our questions to God when we're suffering, our feelings of despondency and forsakenness when times are tough, our agonizing that oftentimes plagues our souls, And yet in that very moment, he never lost sight of his father. He cries out to him. Who you cry out to when you're suffering tells us where your faith is. Jesus still trusted in God, despite all appearances, despite all contexts, despite the fact that the feeling seemed to be missing, despite the temptation to cry out, Why do good things happen, or bad things happen to good people? Have you heard that one before? Jesus could have said that. I mean, if there ever was a time, that's the time. (laughs) Why do bad things happen to good people? Calvin once said about Jesus' cry, my God, my God, that Jesus, by faith, quote, took hold of God with both hands of his heart. This cry of dereliction was one of faith, not contempt. 
It wasn't faithlessness that led Jesus to this prayer. It was faith. The darkness that encapsulates the moment represents for us the true mood of this horrific event. Darkness taking place at noon and for three hours. Certainly, God's judgment against sinners was taking place. Absolutely, that much is obvious. But it's also as if the entire created order was becoming undone. The darkness would have been terrifying for many people. We, we can track historically, there was no eclipse. Was it just immense cloud coverage? Some movies portray it as a storm. I don't know. It's inexplicable. But it was dark. It was dark. God had done it. The darkness was the undoing of creation. It was the undoing of the old order of things, the old Adam. The old heavens and earth, the old earth were giving way to a new heavens and a new earth, a new order guided by the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom. Additionally, the darkness surrounding this moment of forsakenness also bespeaks of what it is that was happening right then and right there in that moment. God's wrath and punishment for sin, what God had given to Adam and Eve as a sanction against them for their disobedience, was now being poured out on our Lord. Our forsaking of God and His law because of our sin was now being foisted upon Him. Furthermore, our breaking of the commandments and complete inability to follow them, even half-heartedly, was put there as well. Calvin notes, quote, He bore in his soul the tortures of condemned and ruined man. Calvin also writes, He endured the pains of hell for a time to free and acquit me. How should you think about Good Friday? Well, think of it this way. Our lusts. Our failure to do what God has commanded. Our adulteries, our lying, our fornications, our gossip, our fire-starting tongues, our slander, our foolishness, our, our obstinance, our, our gluttony, our laziness, our fickleness, our jealousy, our murderous ambitions, our love of self, our penchant for cheating, our people-pleasing fear of man, our sexual immorality, every single idol that we have ever concocted to take the place of God was condemned in the flesh of Jesus Christ. It was nailed there in your place. Are you not humbled? Spurgeon said, Hell itself has for its fiercest flame the separation of the soul from God. That forsakenness and separation that we deserve because of our sinful machinations, Jesus took all of it upon himself. That is, that is our death. Provided we go with him to the cross by faith. The cross, friends, is our doing, and it is our death. So let us go there. Psalm 22 was a legal plea, a cry out to God to vindicate the righteous and be faithful to the covenant it was a genuine prayer of faith from the lips of Jesus during a moment or of, of true and horrific despair and pain and suffering and agony and utter forsakenness. Hebrews 5.7 reads, He in the days of his flesh offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. God heard his cry. And we're going to talk about that on Sunday. It is Good Friday because Jesus has become as sin for us. And the only possible way for sin to be extinguished 
is for the perfect man to unite together with perfect deity to take upon the debt himself. He suffered the judgment of forsakenness for our sins, the thing that we deserved. He is our great sin offering. And the irony, as darkness enshrouds the scene, Jesus' last gasp is darkness's last gasp. The king of the Jews is on his throne and the world has thrown everything it can at him. Would it be enough? Certainly not. Certainly not. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you for the truth of your word and we thank you for what your son did. Lord, we confess that Jesus did, in fact, pay it all. He paid it all. And we are humbled by that reality. Father, would you help us to reflect Reflect deeply about the pain and the suffering. And not just in sort of an altruistic sense, but reflect deeply on the fact that those are our sins. Those nails are there because of us. So Holy Spirit, keep that truth in front of us so that we can live lives of holiness, of humility, of graciousness. Father, we glorify you in the name of your Son, we pray. Amen.